electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the state of stocks after the worst week in a couple of months. And with tomorrow's CPI now looming large, we get you set up for that with some fresh moves from the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Jenny Harrington, Steve Weiss, Joe Terranova. Everybody's at the table. Happy to see everybody here. Let's go to the wall, see what we're doing. 12 noon in the east. We've got uh, green across the board, as you see. Dow's good for 285, we'll call it. S&P near 1%. NASDAQ outperforming today. Yields at 372. That is on the 10-year. But, Joe, we're waiting for the CPI. J.P. Morgan games it out, as they always do, and we like to bring our viewers that information, sort of what they're talking about, what the likely outcomes are, and what the result will be. In the stock market, 65% chance, they say, it goes between 6 and 6.3%. Okay? Remember, it was 6.5 last time. Okay. That's bullish, they suggest. You get a 15 to 2% pop, but you see the rally faded. My point is, like, we, you know, you got a bunch of potential outcomes, and we're hanging on this next big hurdle for this rally. It's interesting because I actually see the pressure being on bears not so much the bulls. I think bulls are in control here. I've said this all along. I think you've got a little bit of a runway through the spring where the market can rally and then the lag effect of what monetary policy uh, takes effect. But inflation and the report that we're going to get tomorrow, we know there's going to be several distortions. The weightings have changed for how it's going to be calculated. So owner's equivalent rent now has a higher weighting. That's up to 25%. The shelter component is going to be a little bit hotter than expected. In addition, used car prices, which in January were up 2.5%. That's the first increase that we've seen since June. The used car pricing is actually going to have a lower weighting. So there's going to be some distortions in the report. Understand that I think the good side of the economy is going to look better. I think the services side of the economy is going to look more difficult. And I think the road for inflation is going to be bumpy. But unless you see a very hot number, when I say a hot number, I mean month on month, up six tenths, core up five to up six tenths. Last month, we were up six and a half year on year overall. I think you need to see up six and a half year on year overall, because if you fall in that six two, six three area, market's going up. So, Weiss, the bulls are in control. OK, that's what that's what Joe just said. You agree with that? Uh, For now. I, well, For now. you do. Come on, you do. I, actually, I don't agree with the characterization. I don't know that anybody's in control right I, now. Only you could Only only you would put yourself into a pretzel twist to come up with that answer. No, I you mean, perceive the, you the perceive ra- I mean, the, the stocks have been rallying, right? Uh, it's been hard to push the market down, right? Yeah. The bulls yep. feel like they have some newfound momentum. Wouldn't you agree with that? No, I, I definitely see this momentum. I continue to see cherry picking of good news in a sea of what could be bad news. So look, so if you were counting on this being a deep recession at this point, 
then clearly you're wrong. I don't know that anybody was, but that was a headline dialogue because it was sensational. Um, Similarly, I think it's completely asinine to think the Fed's going to pivot and all of a sudden start cutting rates at any point this year. They're not going to make that mistake. So where are we? We're still in the case, as Joe alluded to, to the lag effect of monetary policy, which I believe will hit mostly at the end of this year. Mm -hmm. And we're still in a multiple expansion phase of the market, which defines momentum. So there's no basis now. You think we're still in a bear market? Um, I think the, I, I think we're basically in a very narrow trading range. I wouldn't call it a bear market. So you don't think we're in a bear market I think anymore? The, uh, um, no, I think we're in a very narrow trading range in the market. We're going to go up. We're going to go down. Is the risk more to the downside than the upside? Yes, because how long can multiple expansion go up? But to me, I define bear markets as going down 20%. We're not going to go down 20% from here necessarily because there's too much money that wants to come in. So this, even you, who is more negative than most, don't think we're, we're going back to put new lows in? Uh, um, I don't think we'll put new lows in, but I still think that towards the second half of this year is going to be extremely challenging. And all the people that have been walking around the streets or riding their tractors saying, I'm right, I'm right, despite the market still being crushed, you know, are going to be disappointed. So I look for idiosyncratic stories where I believe that the valuation is reasonable. I expect that the earnings nose, like a deer, can still go lower, but I'm comfortable that they'll recover. I think we've seen that. So it's all about positioning in idiosyncratic risk. I'm not playing the market. Okay. I'm playing specific stocks. All right. So let's talk about positioning a little bit. Um, Jenny, so Wells Fargo says the bear market is over. Mike Wilson today says not only is it not over, but the bear market rally soon will be. Okay. Here's what Mike Wilson says. Price action is not reflective of the deteriorating fundamentals or the fact that the Fed is hiking during an earnings season. Drivers that should ultimately determine the lows for this bear market later this spring. Bottom line, we don't advise waiting for the obvious signal the bear market rally is over. We recommend positioning now for the end of the bear market rally is basically what he's saying in anticipation of the moment of truth before it's obvious and too late. What do you think? Well, I think they're both right. And I know that's a pretty lame answer, but it's interesting listening. It's a very wise answer. Uh, I'd say it's between all of us, but it's interesting because you listen to Joe and Joe says the road for inflation is bumpy. Of course it is. The road for the market's bumpy. Everything's bumpy. Weiss says that you need to cherry pick, that there, people are cherry picking. Did you what I said? Yeah. I she's writing I that always do. Wow. So you need to be careful because when you take pot shots, no, 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 I'm not giving you that fist bump. Um, you took pot shots and that was a mean one. I wrote that one down too. But, uh, but I think, you know, what Weiss said is ch- people are cherry picking good news. And that's true too. So you take Mike Wilson and he says, you know, we're going back to this bear market. But I agree with you. What does that mean? Well, he mean? says we're never out of it. I mean, well, what are, does do you that think we're mean? out of it? I don't know. I think we're range bound. And I think if you look at the market between now and the middle of June, it's in a pretty tight range, kind of like 3,600-ish to 41, 4,200-ish. And I think we're stuck there. Well, let me so ask I you, think- is, is now the time then, based on what he's saying about positioning, is now the time to fade what's been leading this year? Because yeah. it's, it's That's not fair legit. Enough. I think that's fair enough. And, and when we get to our trades and what we've done in the last week, you'll hear that we've done exactly that. So I think what you do with this is you say, well, they're, you know, you're in a pretty good position. I'm going to tell you what I've been working on for research. I've been researching Stanley Works. And for me, it's, you know, this is um, Black & Decker and DeWalt. We haven't bought it yet. And why haven't we bought it yet? Because I've said to myself, well, 
we'll probably get some pullback. I want to buy it under 80. Under 80, it's got a 4% yield. I can probably buy it there. And so that's why I'm like, I don't know if I'm in Wilson's camp, Joe's camp, Weiss's camp, Jim's camp. I, I'm in Wilson's I think camp we're with, just range Yeah, bound. Weiss is definitely in, in Wilson's Without camp. Without the labeling, I'm in Wilson's well, camp. Well, not really, because you said, do I think I'm going down 20% and that would be a bear market? And you said, no, I don't think we're going down there. I don't there. think we're going down So what is Mike Wilson really? Here. Then is it a bear market? Or... Do we need to redefine bull market? And that might be really what we need to do, which is if we're not visiting the October, October was at 12th lows, then we've ultimately been crawling out of that hole. But if we keep defining bull market as what we experienced for the past 10 years, which is rah, rah, rah party, then, we're, then no, we don't have a bull market. But maybe- That was new, raging bull market. Okay, fair enough. But maybe the new bull market is just not down that much or just not down or slowly creeping up with pullbacks in the middle. I don't know. All I know is that you're exactly right. You need to look for idiosyncratic risk, find idiosyncratic positions. There's plenty out there to buy. You can be patient and wait. Yeah, so, so you, answered, this- you answered my question that gets more to the heart of, of what we're talking about, whether it's time to start fading what's led you here, right? It's Wilson goes there too, okay? Uh, tech, right? That's really what I'm alluding to. Where he says it hasn't been driven at all by fundamentals, it's... He says that it's been broadly disappointing because of earnings, right? It's been driven by the hope for a Fed pivot, the thing we started talking about at the beginning of the show. And he says, quote, price is about as disconnected from reality as it's been during this bear market. Is that true? I think Mike's right there. Price is disconnected from reality as it relates to tech. A thousand percent. I think Mike is correct. I don't know that there's been any fundamental improvement for technology relative to where we were in 2022. I I don't see that. I think you could have confidence that the most most significant underperformers in 2022 are leading the market higher. What does that usually mean? That usually means that the lows from October, they're safe. But does that mean that I want to concentrate in that direction? Do I want to invest in those businesses? I don't think that I want to go there. Do you not believe it or you don't want to believe it because you're not positioned for it, right? I think it's a fair question among a lot of investors. I'm not positioned for it. it. I'm not positioned for it. I'm ready to underperform. If we continue to see last year's laggards lead the market higher, but I don't see the fundamental evidence in front of me that says these businesses are about to see a growth acceleration once again that they have the all clear. He said there's no way to say, Weiss, it's fundamentally driven because earnings in that space have been disappointing. Yeah, and I think there's a nuance to that. And I'd say the nuance is take a look at Meta today. Meta's up against A because they're cutting more heads. So it goes back to my narrative, which is they're finding something that they, the bulls are finding something they could hang their hat on. And what they're saying is that, that this is a much more efficient company at this point, and so I'm going to buy it. And I disagree with that. I think Meta is, is overvalued. You know here. what B of A says today on Meta, which is the first time that I can think about this sort of commentary around that particular name, yeah. maybe ever, if not in a very long time. Quote, we see Meta as a more defensive stock <laughs> in the sector with the potential for cost uh, rationalization to provide more downside support to EPS in a recession scenario than industry Except peers. Except for the fact. Is this the defensive name in big tech now? No, it's less ludicrous. It's de- oh, it's defensive against, because it's against Google. Is it defensive against yeah, Apple? Is it defensive against, you know, uh, maybe, you know, but these, but the answer comes out and says it, is looking at just that space. Mm-hmm. So too often we say, oh, B of A comes out and says this is their top pick. No, that's a top pick in the space by an analyst okay. who's got tunnel vision. $220. But, is the price is the price target 
Right. And I'd say that why should it be there? They're still betting the farm 10%. on Metaverse, which we don't know will yield benefits. We don't know if they're yeah, but, I mean, monstrous cap. In fairness, I mean, off. they have told you, OK, maybe we got off track a little bit. We're going right. to go back and focus more on the core. We seem to be more focused than we have been in 18 to 24 months. Right. Little pushes from some investors like Gerstner. But we've also, you know, right, tried to right size ourselves and focus more on what got us here in the first place while still keeping an eye on, on the future where we're investing. Yeah, but the, the issue is that what got them there in the first place is now a more competitive spot. Yeah, but they still have two billion daily active users. Sure they do, but they've got to monetize it. Right. And you've got plenty of ways to monetize it away from Facebook. Look, Facebook is it's not a company that's going bankrupt. Was 130 or 118 the right price for it? Probably not. Is is, is 180? Right, is, is 180 the right no, price? No, I don't believe so. I don't believe so. I don't believe for Microsoft, even though I own a little, I sold some of my trading position. Right now, where it is, 10% off its highs, despite a slowdown, a real slowdown in cloud. Do I think that's the right price for it? No. So I do believe those stocks are overbought, and I agree with 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 Mike on. Except I think that people have bought it for fundamental reasons, not because they're looking at a Fed pivot. I'll tell right. you what. Can I tell you what I think is going on here? Um, so what I think is it goes back to your people are cherry picking good news. And so when we look at the at the big tech, the FANG complex, a lot of people are saying, oh, with the Fed pivots, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? None of these stocks were actually propped up on super low interest rates and they and they don't borrow. So they're not the ones that benefited directly from super low interest rates. They weren't the zombie businesses that needed them. So why then have they had this big run? Wait, wait, wait. wait. I don't These companies didn't benefit from zero interest rates. Not in Why the did their way. multiples go to the level that they okay, did? But not they wouldn't have gone there without they zero the interest ones rates. They were borrowing on zero percent just to grow their businesses, right? That's the that's the smaller ones, the Pelotons, the DocuSigns, the Zooms, the ones that came out. Yes, of private but they equity. all benefited. They all benefited, but I'm saying they didn't benefit directly. So now, if interest rates go up and then come back down, it's not like they suddenly have a huge difference in their earnings because of interest rates going up and hopefully coming back down. So what I think happened here is actually people cherry-picked good news and applied it to this, and I think a lot of people want to relive the party that they've had over the past 10 years and are afraid to try something new, got back into the stocks, hand over fist, cherry-picking, cherry-picking, oh, Fed's gonna pivot, Fed, you know, Fed drove all tech up before. Guess what, it did, it was along for the ride, but low interest rates did not directly, right, it did not directly by allowing them to borrow at zero, drive those companies to the stratospheric heights. So, so if that's the case, and I'm right on this, those valuations shouldn't really come down if the Fed slows down. Sorry, the Fed, they should not be sustained if the Fed comes, if the Fed lowers rates. This is, sorry, there, little there, chaotic. There was, a lot, there was a lot of debt offerings in mega there cap were. companies over the last 10 years. But they didn't the, need you know, zero. Zero. Apple raised at 25 bips. But they didn't need it. Right. They didn't need it. And they have long term debt. So if if the 10 year goes from what's it at right now, three and a half, if it goes to four, four and a half, their borrowing costs you're, you're are not going to impact their businesses. You know, there's cross currents to what you're saying. On one hand, you're talking about the fundamentals on the company. But to Scott's point, you had a valuation umbrella from a free money policy. A hundred percent. So so I would say that. The prices that Facebook reach or Meta and Microsoft were never real. So right? I go back to the question I asked you, though, about fading money. this stuff like Joe. So you should. Yeah, Joe has gotten out of the Apple recently. He got out of Microsoft, Microsoft recently. Tesla. Microsoft out of Tesla, which, you know, went from 100 to 200, which has pulled back a little bit more uh, of late. Um, Morgan Stanley reiterates Microsoft 300, 307 price target there. Uh, Evercore ISI reiterates Apple outperform. 190 price targets. So the street's not ready to give up by any stretch on, on these names. No, and you have to believe, too, that if rates 
you know, maybe remain where they are, but don't start reaccelerating higher, that these stocks are going to continue to do well. I would agree with that. And these are names that, you know, easily the strategy could return to once again. I also think you have to think about the tax loss selling and the intensity of it in 2022. And, And these names, these were the names, these were the targets of that tax loss selling. So how much of what we're seeing so far year to date in 2023 is the rebuilding of positions in mega caps. Good. And I think we'll, we've only had one earnings report so far year to date, and that's looking back on the prior but, quarter. I think you have to allow for more time to have the ultimate confidence. And I agree with Stephen on this one point. I think mega caps might just be in a sideways range for now. And, that, and to that point, why are you rebuilding your position in Apple? For Microsoft, if it's not going to do too much and if earnings aren't going to grow at the rates they were before, and just because you sold it last year for tax loss harvesting, you don't have to get back into it this year. No, but why do they have to grow at the prior rate necessarily? They can still grow at above above market rate, above competitive rate. Because when they're trading at 25 earnings, they need to grow at at a... earnings rate significantly above that of the market, and many of them are not growing their earnings significantly above that so of the market. you think the valuation's too high? You don't think it deserves that premium valuation for Apple? Not the number that it's at now. And you and yeah. I have, d- have argued this in the past. Maybe if the market's at 18, maybe it deserves 19, 20, 21, but I don't think it deserves What 25. if I told you that the recession risks Weiss are diminishing? That someone like Jan Hatzius at Goldman lowers their 12-month probability to 25% now? versus 65% consensus. You're probably in the 65 or above uh, range for more reasons than one. Wink. Um, Seriously, though, what about that call? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a coin flip. It really is. And for me, you know, the dialogue where we're saying a recession is going to be there was never what I was focused on. But what if I told you that no landing or no no landing? Right. Okay? Savita, Bank of America, talks about that today. Yeah. Right? And, and, that, and that's, the, that's the latest hot term, the but no I mean, landing term. Mm-hmm. In part because consumption remains strong, right? right. The consumer remains but strong. But it's bifurcated. Maybe you get no landing, maybe you get no you, recession. You see, I, I think that's incorrect. I'm not so sure. As a matter of fact, the consumer doesn't remain strong. The high-end consumer and maybe the middle-level consumer remain, has an appetite for experience, et cetera. But the lower-end consumer... How can, how can anybody say they remain strong when you've seen what inflation has done to them, when you see what the cost of filling up their gas tank, of paying rent, et cetera, has increased, and they're on basically a fixed income of an hourly wage? So, no, the consumer, most consumers don't remain strong. And I still think there'll be this wake-up moment where they're saying, you know what, I've depleted my free government handouts, and now I've got to look for a job, which was in the 517,000 number, whatever it was we saw two weeks ago, despite wages coming down. So I don't think the consumer overall is that strong. Just don't. And it hasn't been for a while. I think July, August, and September are going to be the three most difficult months of 2023. I think this whole conversation surrounding recession or not, you know my feelings. I feel as though we've had a very significant valuation recession for stock prices for the second half of 2021 for some strategies and certainly for the entire market in 2022. Why July, August, September? I mean, it's only it's only February. I I think that is when the lag effect is really going to begin to be felt from the economic contraction that I think is looming ahead. Let's talk about let's talk about some moves here. I want to get these in. okay? before we take our first break. And I'm going to come to you because you bought Skyworks, Mm -hmm. a former Weiss uh, stock uh, from the chip space. Why? Why? 
Well, first of all, it's cheap. This was in our discipline growth strategy. You sold strategy. raw stores, too. Right. And so that's, that's an interesting one. So when Weiss says, I think the consumer's going to remain strong, let's start I with the south. I I never said the consumer's going to remain strong. I said the high Check end the consumer. Notes. Okay. Okay, fine. Some consumers are going to remain strong. So we thought so, too. But then you have raw stores, which is up significantly off the low, trading at 22 times earnings, which is too much. You look at the other retail peers, and you've got Ralph Lauren at 13, VF Corp at 12, Tapestry at 11 times. And you've got raw stores that's actually run up significantly with the idea that inventory overload in 2022 ends up being good for 2023. But as we know, this market anticipates things. So the share price of raw stores ran up in advance of that. On the other hand, you have Skyworks, which I think was thrown out. And this is interesting, too, because when we're talking about tech being overvalued, well, Skyworks is trading at 12 times with an 11% free cash flow yield. And what they do, because I know we talk about these names, but what they do is they make communications chips. And so every cell phone we have uses them. What's interesting, Steve, I know you used to own Corvo, but Corvo made chips for um, a lot of their chips went into Chinese handsets. Mm -hmm. And so that was different. Uh, Skyworks has almost no 2% exposure to China. So they really saw really decent inventory management. They, um, they said on their call, and we waited for the call to hear how they'd been managing it, and then that's when we bought it. I wish we'd bought it earlier. Um, Apple's a customer, right? Everyone's customer. a customer. Well, right. Apple's, and I ask you everyone's that. Apple's over 50%. I, I ask but, you that, right. so how can you be negative on Apple if you're buying Skyworks telling me about the, the handset because, market? Because why am I negative on Apple? Am I negative on Apple as a company? No. I'm negative on Apple because of the valuation. Because if Apple's growing their earnings at six, seven times, they do not, de- sorry, six, seven percent, they do not deserve a 25 times multiple. But here you have a company that's growing their earnings significantly. The more devices, the more complexity, the more, the more need there is for Skyworks chips. And they said in their call that they expect 75 billion devices by 2013 that are going to use their chips. That's unbelievable. And so there's just enormous, endless growth there. Weiss, you take, this is a stock but you take that yeah. at 12 times, and that's a compelling technology investment. Yeah, I, I, I don't see 12 times being particularly cheap for semis at this point, particularly when ah. when Apple is such a large customer. If you compare it to NVIDIA, it's cheap. But basically, you know, yeah, they go into more devices. They're going to continue. What the real attraction to Skyworks is, for me anyway, is that they have their own fabs in the U.S. And as you see more onshoring, they can just expand. It's not. It's a lot easier to expand than to build Right, but you don't own it anymore. But this is- I, I don't, and you know, I, I kept looking at it when it was about par, and kept saying, "Should I do it? Should I do it?" And I was just too, do you too think the semis to have bottomed. But here's the thing: it's it's uh, wait, company he, by company, he, though. Do you think the semis have bottomed? I think they've gone through a lot of the inventory that they had, which caused the decline. Have they actually bottomed? If I thought they actually, I think. Let me answer this. I think I'll get another chance at Skyworks. Okay. But I think Make when this you talk last about thought, I want to okay, when you right. talk about the semis and the cyclicality, like Intel had a very different quarter. They managed their inventory horribly compared to Nvidia and AMD. And so you need to look at each semi right now as its own. And that's why we waited for this call because we needed to hear from management how they manage their inventory and what they were expecting for the second half. All right. All right. Speaking of calls, coming up, we've got our call of the day. It's a sector that struggled over the past three months. It could be ready to regain its leadership, at least according to one market watcher. We've got the debates. We've got the trades. We'll do it next. We're back in two. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. 
To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, it's time for our call of the day. BTIG's Jonathan Krinsky with a new note today saying energy could resume its leadership role. The sector was up 5.5% last week. It is the only negative sector so far today, down about 1%. All right, Joe, I'm coming to you first because this is how you are positioned. Correct. Right? You're double, I think, what the S&P is, right? Okay, it's EOG, it's Pioneer, it's Valero, it's Chevron, Devon, Energy Transfer, Diamondback, Kinder, and, and Exxon. You think he's right? I well, certainly hopes that he's right. Do I think he's right? I think the early signals of it are, yes, present in the market. Understand the commodities trade. Overall, collectively, you've got CTAs that are very, very short. They're very short in the futures market itself. Last week, you had a 5% recovery in the energy equity names. I think that's the initial stages of something that could be building specifically towards oil. I don't think it's universal in the entire commodity space. We'll talk a little bit later in the show about the agriculture trade. I think it's specific to oil. This is the moment. You need to see it build momentum to the upside for Jonathan to be right. It has to happen here and now. Okay. Um, what if he's wrong? What do, you, what do you do with your positioning there? The end of April, that'll be addressed. That's the next quarterly rebalance and reconstitution. What about your personal holdings? My personal holdings will be addressed at the same time. Most of my personal holdings right now are in Joe T. But um, is, there, is there a likelihood that he you. could be wrong? Yeah, I, I, I've said that. I've said that commodities have lost momentum for sure, and there's an argument to be made that the peak commodity story is in play. And if you look at the yield curve inversion, which is the, the deepest and you know, most significant that it's been since the early 1980s, it's reflected in the pricing of commodities. So, Jenny, it's Devon Energy Transfer Kinder. you got a lot of crossover with Joe Pioneer as well, and Shell, which, which is yours. Um, Joe doesn't have that, but you do. Right, but so what that, about this space? What about this call? Well, I think if you say energy is going to maintain or get back its leadership role, you need to be expecting not a lot from anything else. Because we need to remember that energy was up over 50% in 2021 and 2022. So what do I expect energy overall to be up this year? I don't know. 
10, 12%. So if that's leadership, what does it say about everything else? And, and when you say to Joe, what happens if you're wrong? For me, um, most of those names are in our US dividend portfolio. Shell and Total are in our international dividend portfolio. But if you're kind of wrong, you sit there and you just scrape the dividends and hope that the share prices plateau, which I think they should. Because with oil above $60 a barrel, these companies continue to make cash. And again, this gets all back to valuations. Their share prices are not priced to any like sky high. You know, they're all, a lot of them are under 10 times earnings. And you know, I sold Chevron. That was more because of the dividend yield. But some of the major, some of the popular ones like Chevron and Exxon, some of those multiples are getting a little stretched. So I'm playing right now really in the dividendy space, Kinder Morgan, Devon, um, Pioneer, One Oak, Williams, and what do I want from them? If I get a 12% return from them this year, I will consider myself very happy. Weiss, you got Devin and you added to Chevron last week, right? Well, I added Chevron last week. You I, added I, Chevron last yeah, week. Yeah, because I've been underwater. Stock traded below 170, so I, so, uh, and it's about there right now, so I added to it. Look, uh, I don't really let technical analysis inform what I do because I'm strictly bottoms up. However, if I list somebody, listen to Krinsky, and I hope he's right this time. Um, but to me, energy remem- remains long-term uninvestable. It's tradable. But you went through a 10-year period up until last week where you basically were losing money every year for 10 years, up until last year, rather, not last week. So, well, What time frame do you consider to be, quote-unquote, investable versus not? Um, yeah, what's a trade? Six months to a year is a trade for versus others that you can own, you know, course well, you stocks could have owned, You could have owned energy all of last year, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's an anomaly. It's, it's not me saying it, it's fact, right? The stocks have major down cycles, and we saw one for 10 years where it underperformed massively. No, I understand, but what I'm saying is last year it had a pretty damn good year, didn't it? Yeah, look, it, it did. It did. It had a great year, and I missed it. Look, here's what I'd say. The, the dialogue, no offense, Jenny, that, hey, oil can go to 60 and still make money. Well, it doesn't mean the stocks, you're not going to lose your shirt if that happens. You shouldn't and lose you your will. shirt. They're well, yes, hugely you will. Po- no, profitable. It, why is that any different than saying, hey, Microsoft's earnings can be cut in half, but you're still going to be because making money? Because at 60, they're my- not cut in half. At 60, they're still making tons of money. At 60, you missed my point. You missed my point. They are in the way the fundamentals move are informed by the value of the commodity. And if the commodity is lower, it's because demand is down. But you know what? That's actually not true. That's not true. Everybody. No, it's actually not. Everybody wants to pretend it is because because last year when Chevron was at sorry, when oil was at like 140, Chevron was way lower than it is now. Right. You could have bought Chevron at like, what, 120, 130 when yep. the commodity price was at 140. Now the commodity price is at 75. Chevron's at 170. So they should be linked and people pretend they're linked, but they're not actually they, linked. And you know what? People are so, No, there was a hate it fest. Everybody knows, yourself included, that there was a hate fest on energy. The students were storming the Yale campus saying like, oh, you can't put energy in our portfolios, in our endowment. And there and there was so much money. ESG driven that came out of energy that it just straight up depressed the share price and it was totally disconnected from the commodity price or from the idea that these companies were continuing to pump out cash. Yeah. So you could have bought Chevron at like 70 bucks three years ago. You would have made a nice return. I would argue that three years is a decent investment time frame, not just a trade. Here's the mistake in your logic. You're extrapolating a one-time event that's never occurred since the button tree for energy stocks, which is the ESG phenomena. Okay, so you can't equate that to how 
or use that as an analysis to how energy is de-linked from the commodity. That was one time that maybe it's going to continue. But energy stocks trade upon where the commodity is, which is why Chevron's down. Guess what? You know why it's down? Because that gas is down and energy prices are down. Let's let Joe deal with that question. The linkage between the commodity price and the performance of the equities. So I think... And then we're taking a break. I think you have to... I was having so much fun. Okay, so Jenny mentioned 140. The high last year for the price of oil was 130.50. All right. You did not spend enough time above 120 to really impact the earnings ability of energy companies. I think there was only seven days the entire year where the spot price of oil was above 120. So you had a little bit of a parabolic move and then it pulled back. I think you have to look at it to your point. What's the average pricing over a yearly basis, which is more in the sweet spot of 80 to 85? I think that's the right range to think about it. And as long as you have that fundamental support for the underlying commodity, I think energy equities will do well. One last real quick point. You mentioned something that's interesting, which is energy gives you 10 percent means everything else doesn't do well. I just want everyone to think about this scenario. China reopening. We keep talking about it on the network. China reopening means a higher price for oil which means a higher, bumpier inflation path, which means difficulty for the remainder of the S&P 7. Why are you talking then about potentially peak commodities? And then on the other hand, well, you're talking peak, about China reopening, no, 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 no. which... But the peak commodity story has been in play since June of last year. That's when all the commodities kind of peaked out. Now, to get the reacceleration, to get the positive momentum going again for commodities, right. the potential positive catalyst is the China all right. reopening. So we are at the highs of the day in crude. Uh, north of 80 bucks. We'll take a quick break. And up next, the latest trends in ETF investing right now. And during February, we're celebrating Black Heritage through the stories of some of our CNBC teammates, contributors, and leaders in business. Here's Elizabeth Donovan, CNBC director. Often in my career, I have been the first black woman to hold my position, sometimes the only black person. People will question everything you do and ask how you got here, as if not by hard work. When you are successful, you internalize to survive the spaces that were not made for us. My advice, be courageous, be bold, don't diminish your gifts. Today, you may be first, but hopefully tomorrow, you will be one of many. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Bertha Coombs with your CNBC News update at this hour. A man is in police custody after a U-Haul van with Arizona license plates struck four people on a sidewalk in Brooklyn, New York this morning. One of them is reported to be in grave condition at a local hospital. Police are looking for a potential motive. When a top NORAD general was asked over the weekend by a reporter if the U.S. has excluded the possibility that three objects shot down over the U.S. and Canada might be aliens or extraterrestrials, he responded that nothing has been ruled out. That prompted a similar question today to a Michigan congresswoman. 
I have no reason to believe this is a UFO. Um, and I, I noticed that the general's wording um, uh, left open the door, so I, I know that's gotten all kinds of excitement. Um, but the chances are this is just a normal, run-of-the-mill thing that we and the intelligence community know how to exploit. And U.S. officials in Moscow are repeating their warning that any American citizens living or traveling in Russia should leave immediately to avoid arbitrary detention or harassment from security forces. Scott, back over to you. Okay, Bertha, thank you. Bertha Coombs. Now to Mike Santoli with today's ETF Edge. Hey, Mike. Hello, Scott. Thank you very much. Well, after a dismal year for both equities and fixed income in 2022, bonds are finally regaining traction as a competitive asset class particularly amid lofty equity market valuations. Roughly $26 billion flowed into fixed income funds in January alone. With the highest real yields investors have seen in decades, savers are finally being compensated. And the 60-40 model, the asset allocation model, clearly alive and well. So what is the key takeaway as markets brace for the CPI report tomorrow, then the implications for the Federal Reserve? Let's ask Todd Rosenbluth head of research at Vetify, plus James McNerney. He runs the J.P. Morgan Ultra Short Income ETF, ticker JPST. It is the largest actively managed ETF in the business. Uh, welcome to you both, guys. Thanks, Mike. Uh, so, James, I mean, it, there's something of a novelty here with a, a generous availability of decent yields and short-term uh, fixed income right now. Where within your universe are you focusing right now for the best opportunity? Yeah, certainly with the curve inversion right now, it's a bit of a gift with regard to the, the yields that we see in the front end. Uh, the best opportunity right now for us, though, is one-year A-rated bank paper yielding five and a quarter to five and a half percent. So that's really the trade that we like the most. We start moving out into bonds further than that. You know, the, obviously the curve is inverted. Credit curves are normally shaped, but yields are about flat. So you're really not picking up a whole lot from moving out. I think that that's a risk-reward proposition that's very attractive to a lot of investors. So you're essentially getting paid to take somewhat lower risk. Interesting uh, setup at the moment, uh, Todd. In terms of actively managed. ETFs, actively managed bond ETFs, there has been the conventional wisdom that it was more conducive, perhaps, to uh, an active approach. What are you seeing in that area? We're seeing strong demand uh, for, from advisors, from individual investors, and in institutions using active management. And now they have more choices within the ETF wrapper. So we have JP Morgan, we've got firms like Capital Group and PIMCO, Morgan Stanley just entered the ETF marketplace. A number of these firms were down at the exchange conference talking about the benefits of active management. And now there's even more choices than ever before. And we're finding investors are gravitating towards those products. They want help managing their interest rate risk, managing their credit risk, and now they have those tools than the ETF wrapper. Yeah, it certainly has been the case. I guess uh, just pure passive indexing and fixed income a little bit uh, less clean than perhaps in equities. Well, we are going to have much more from James and Todd on the landscape for fixed income in the Fed, as well as an update on the setup for a potential soft landing with PIMCO's Jerome Schneider. We'll also take a look at the year ahead for active management with more actively managed ETFs coming to fruition. That is all ahead at 1 p.m. Eastern on ETF Edge. .cnbc.com. Scott, back over to you. All right, Mike, thank you. That's Mike Santoli. Up next in our chart of the day, a mystery stock moving higher despite a couple of downgrades. Jenny owns it. We'll give you the trade next. Let's get to our chart of the day. It is XPO. Why? Because the stock is up like that despite two downgrades. Morgan Stanley today saying the stock uh, saying today the stock could be in the penalty box for a while. We said it's one of two uh, downgraded Morgan Stanley downgraded at Wells and Jeffries on Friday. You own it. Weiss used to own it. But, but you go first. So may, 
Maybe you guys can have a moment of agreement. Very nice. XPO. We'll try. Maybe I'll convince him to buy this. What about this? I mean, stock up even with a couple of downgrades. So I think it's interesting that they say penalty box because XPO is less than truckload freight shipping. They used to have that plus freight logistics uh, um, plus freight brokerage. And so what they did to get out of the penalty box for being too confusing was they spun off GXO and they spun off RXO to try to have people say, okay, what's a fair valuation for this? So now it trades at six times EBITDA. Their competitors are Old Dominion and JB Hunt. Those trade at 18 times and 10 times. So it's really, really discounted. They actually gained market share in the last quarter. But I think the reason it traded down so much after the last earnings call was because people were really, it was up 32% going into that, Mm -hmm. 32% year to date. And people were expecting some kind of fireworks. Meanwhile, yield was only up one and a half percent, where Q3, it had been up seven percent. So I think it was just a lot of disappointment from expectations being too high. But you still have a company that's dirt cheap relative to peers and superb, I would argue, superior management that's really focusing on technology and taking significant market share. Weiss, you used to love this name. I did. I did. And keep in mind, I got into XPO originally because they had GXO. RXO, I didn't expect to be spun out. Uh, but that surprised me. And this is, you know, a Brad Jacobs creation that was phenomenal, tremendous value creator. Brad now is executive chairman, removed from the operations, but the management team is excellent. So for me, it's purely that's very economically sensitive. And I take a look at uh, at FedEx and UPS, and that's where the money's going to go more so than XPO. I'd love to get back into the stock, and I, it's dirt cheap. It's always been dirt cheap, and I will at some point. Just now, with my economic view, is not the time. All right. We have some uh, big moves in the cloud software sector today. We'll find out where the committee stands on a couple of stocks that are moving a bunch today and still ahead. Of course, we're going to grade your trade. We're back right after this. We're back. We have big action in the cloud today. Fastly is surging after a double upgrade at Bank of America. The shares are up nearly, look at that, near 30%. Our Frank Holland, he follows the cloud stocks for us. It's a huge move. They say get in at the ground floor, upgrade to buy. Yeah, I mean, number one, a double upgrade from Bank of America today. Price target raised. Um, a lot of excitement about this company. It's actually on pace for its second best day ever, believe it or not, even up almost 30 percent, not its best day ever. A lot of this upgrade is about CEO Todd Nightingale, the new CEO. He was put in place back in September, unveiled a big turnaround plan during last earnings in November. Uh, real focus, of course, growth and profitability. I think every CEO is going to say a bit of that, but also um, digging in deeper with the developer community where they already have a great relationship and employee retention. That was something that was beginning to be a problem for Fastly. Some of their employees were leaving a lot of stock-based compensation when the stock took a dive. A lot of their key uh, talent decided they wanted to take a, a step away and, and make some more money. So um, I actually got a chance to speak with Todd Nightingale just about a month before he took over the job. Really an engaging leader. He came from Cisco, where people speak very highly of him. Mm-hmm. Starting during the pandemic in March of 2020, he started running their networking and enterprise unit. Great timing there. So he's a bit battle-tested. He took over that unit during the very first days of the pandemic and has a lot of experience when it comes to the cloud space. I actually liked him a lot. Um, I found him to be somebody who cared about his employees and really spoke about them glowingly. He's one of these kind of new leaders. I know back in the day in business, we had a lot of those top-down leaders. They banged their fists on the table. This is certainly more of a collaborator. I mean, it's uh, it's only like $1.6 billion market cap, yeah, it's right? A, so it's, it's certainly small. a small cap market. The stock got absolutely destroyed, destroyed, right, over the last year. And, you know, as I look now, over the last 12 months, it's it's down 54%, but taken to 30% gain today and gives you an idea of where the stock 
got clobbered to and today where it's come back from. You just don't see moves like this that often on upgrades or downgrades. Well, this company, it really powers digital experiences, streaming, media, retail, other wheelhouses. And in the early days of the pandemic, there was a big run up. I mentioned this is their second biggest day ever. Their first biggest day was back in May of 2020 when everybody was like, oh, wait, digital experience is going to be really important. We're all going digital. And the stock did have a bit of a run up. But again, this is a small cap company. Um, I think the real focus here is they provide edge computing power, uh, power and also to a limited degree, Web3. So there's some excitement down the, down long term. They've mm-hmm. been doing a lot of cost cutting. They had a lot of debt they had to deal with. So this is a company with a lot of upside, assuming the digital experiences continue and, of course, streaming continues. All right. Well, watch it. Highs of the day up 31 percent. Frank, thank you. That's Frank Holland joining us here. Grade My Trade is up next. You can send an email, ask halftime at CNBC.com. You can tweet us as well. We'll be right back with that. All right, grade my trade time. Jenny, you are up first from Carla Reed. I bought 285 shares of Starbolt Carriers at $22.96 on January the 27th. Was it a good trade? And if so, how long should I hold it? Ah, so I don't think you should ever trade Starbolt because the majority of the return that you're going to get from that is the dividend. So right now it's got a 20% dividend yield that is variable. But to get that 20% return, you need to hold it for a long time, like at least a year to get the 20% annual dividend yield. So in terms of grading your trade, I don't really know what to give you because the thing's flat, it's fine, the market's kind of flat over the same period. So I don't know, maybe you get a B. But more importantly, just like adjust your thinking on that and know that this isn't something that you should try and game and trade. Really, it's an investment. All right, number two, Weiss for you. Uh, Todd in Santa Rosa Beach, Florida, uh, for Steve Weiss, quote unquote, the king. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. you I I bought NASDAQ 100 July 280 puts that expire in 2024. Yeah, I mean, it's not my favorite trade, uh, and I'll tell you why, because you've got to be right on price, you've got to be right in timing, and you lose time value in these. So uh, it's not a bet I would express. Maybe you make money on it, maybe you don't. I think it's just, uh, and obviously you're not going to hold these to expiration. I hope not. So, frankly, I'd rather inform that view elsewhere, which be shorting stocks in NASDAQ that I think are still overvalued okay. in the basket of them. Okay, Joey, to you from Marinho in Oceanside, California. I'm increasing my position in Archer Daniels, ADM. Bought another 200 shares on Thursday on the decline. Okay. Good move. A, B, C, D, E, F. I'm still in the position. I believe in the position. This is a cheap valuation agriculture name. Jenny's going to like this. It's got a 2.2 dividend yield. Don't buy any more ADM, though. You've got enough. Uh, There's been a little bit of a decline in the agriculture stocks. If you're actually going to buy an agriculture stock, the one I'd look at with a little bit higher valuation is Corteva, ticker symbol CTVA. Okay, good stuff. Thank you for the trades. Thank you for the grades. Final trades are next. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. Got a little overtime going on, 4 o'clock Eastern today. Palantir earnings are out. See what that stock does after the numbers come out. Lauren Goodwin's going to join me. Top financial advisor Rich Saperstein is going to be with me on set, too. And we got 13 Fs coming out in the next couple of days. So we'll see if anything big drops in the OT. I'll see all of you there. Let's do final trades here. Jenny Harrington, you are up first. So if I'm right that we're in an either here nor there market where we muddle along, then I want to own cheap and I want to own a lot of cash flow. So Arda, they make aluminum cans. It trades at about 14 times earnings and has a 7.5% dividend yield. 
Mr. Weiss. Bungie. Uh, this, the company reported, uh, I'd say, a mixed quarter at best and was downgraded, but yet the stock went up. So I still think the stock will extend far below, far above 100. So I'm sticking with it. Joey T. Pepsi. On Thursday morning, they delivered exactly what I was looking for. That's the kind of revenue growth. A bottle of want. Pepsi and Fritos? <laughs> no, I don't drink. Earnings this week, too, right? Like tomorrow, maybe? Pepsi uh, earnings were last week. Oh, actually. last week. Excellent what earnings. Think? Look, of something else. look for the stock to take out uh, the December high at 186. All right, good stuff. I'll see all of you in overtime. The exchange with Kelly begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, The ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.